Hey everybody, it's Chris Campbell with the Food Institute and welcome back to another edition of the Food Institute podcast. This week we welcome back friend of the show Dr. Michael Swanson, who is Chief Agricultural Economist with Wells Fargo. We'll be talking about grain plantings, inflation, avian flu, supply chain snarls and how the war in Ukraine could affect US farmers. But before we get started, loyal fans of the podcast are already familiar with my voice, but you got a rare chance to see my face on a recent edition of the Food Institute Live. We're beta testing the platform now, so please stay tuned to your usual Food Institute social media channels for a chance to drop in via YouTube or LinkedIn. So with that out of the way, we welcome back Dr. Swanson to the show. How are you today? Doing well, you know, talking to you from Minnesota here and you know, we're concerned we haven't seen many field work days. We want to get this crop in the field, make some money with these opportunities kind of help with the inflation problems. I was going to say, a lot has changed since we last spoke. So I think we can dive right into it. And as you're mentioning, you know, the launch of USDA's crop progress report, in my mind, usually means we're at the start of a new, you know, harvest and crop season in the U.S. So I think maybe where we could start is just taking a look at soybean and corn plantings for this year, overall impressions of where we're going. So can we start there? Maybe give us just a brief overview of what you're seeing. You know, the market was kind of caught off guard. Um, the projected acreage for corn was lower than expected, higher soybeans. Yet, when you look at what the board, the Chicago Board of Trade is offering you for those two crops, it's not very enticing to plant more beans. If you're looking at November beans versus December corn, you say to yourself, that's a pretty poor price for soybeans versus corn. So the market's kind of wondering, are farmers giving us some kind of head fake here with their prospective acres and what's going to happen once we true them up here? So lots of to be determined out there on this dance card. And yeah, one of the things I want to talk about too, I know we had spoken via email previously about the war in Ukraine with Russia. And, you know, a lot of media reports come out and say, you know, this is the breadbasket of Europe. Um, I'm wondering what is your take right now and how that's affecting the global market? I guess we could start with production at this, as, at, you know, at this moment. How do you see that kind of unfurling and kind of affecting U.S. producers? You said right now that corn seems to be, you know, a little bit less than was projected originally, right, with plantings. Do you think that's in reaction? Do you think that there's an opportunity to kind of change this or is it already kind of set in stone? U.S. doesn't really have a lot of leeway to kind of react to this at this point. You know, what we're talking here might be three to four million acres one way or the other. And the, and farmers have that flexibility. You know, they do. You know, they can't go 10 million or 15 million acres one way or the other, but they, they could do two or three easily. So let's talk about what the media has right and what they might want to revisit. Um, first off, Russia is a bigger grain producer than Ukraine. And so they're taking advantage of this. You know, it's kind of rewarding bad behavior. They're going to get good grain prices for what they plant. And Russia's not going to have any incentive not to plant. They have the fertilizer, they have the seed, and they have plenty of acreage. So it's going to be a weather issue for the Russians. Ukraine, yes, I think, you know, they'll get some crop out. But, you know, if you put a zero in there, you're going to start on the right side of the equation. And so now, breadbasket of Europe? No. They are the breadbasket of MENA. MENA is the trading phrase we use for Middle East, North Africa. And when you look at the export markets for the Ukraine and Russia, it is, you know, countries like Libya, Egypt, a lot of those, what we have long-term client-state relationships between Russia and the Ukraine. And it makes sense. The logistics are very easy. Come out of the Black Sea, you can be pretty much anywhere in the Mediterranean or in, you know, that area in a very short um, haul. Now, one of the questions you might want to ask yourself, because I've been asking this question, is what is food? Which seems like a really dumb economist question, but it's one worth thinking about for a second. So Russia and Ukraine are big 
cereal producers, primarily wheat, and they're also fairly big oil producers around things like canola, sunflower oil. But food's a much bigger category. You have roots and tubers, you have sugar crops, you have vegetables, you have fresh fruit, and they're not very big producers of any of those other categories. So yes, they're extremely important in a couple of key categories, but when it comes to food, it's a much bigger world and they're not as influential as you would think about on the first class. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. Like I said, we had spoken via email about that. And I think, you know, the media really does say that this is the breadbasket of Europe, right? And I think that, you know, kind of minutia and having that, you know, deeper view into it does kind of elucidate the point, you know, exactly what you're saying here is that it's not the only things that they're making. But when we do take a look at some of those staple crops for them, some of those cereals, the wheats, the oils, to your point, do you think that there's going to be an opportunity for U.S. producers trying to fill that gap? Or do you think that a lot of their contracts are already kind of signed and they're going to stay a little bit closer to home? Do you think there's any realistic opportunity for these producers to kind of reach out into those markets that might have, you know, a supply gap in the coming year? You know, yes. And, you know, because say you look out five or six months, what's already in the bins. We've heard from that India, for example, stepped up. We don't think of India being a major grain exporter, but they did have a surplus. They felt that they had an opportunity to take some of that to the market. So in the short term, they're the ones who took advantage of it, but they don't have an you know, a overall supply. So I think if we look out five, six, seven months, there will be an opportunity for the United States to fill in on missing um, supply. Now it'll probably be sporadic and opportunistic, and, but still, that's why the market's up for domestic consumers, because there is that concern that some of that global demand is going to be picked up by the U.S. Yeah, let's take a look down the road. I know predicting inflation is a tricky game, and oftentimes, you know, not a lot of winners when we play this game. But I do think it's worth taking a look at. You know, you're saying five to six months down the line. In my morning reading this morning, I see Nestle coming out saying they're going to hike prices. I saw a piece from ConAgra kind of saying the same thing. So I guess I'm wondering, how do you see these rising prices affecting U.S. production of these grains? Do you think that, you know, I know farmers are also facing the same kind of inflationary pressures as consumers are when it comes to rising labor costs, you know, rising technology costs, even just fertilizer, feed input, et cetera. So it's not like they're immune to this uh, phenomenon. So I'm just wondering, you know, how is inflation affecting a lot of these producers? Do you see any kind of trends coming out? You know, let, let's think about how this played out. I think it's that transformation process. The biggest part of food cost, if you look at the USDA's what they call food dollar, only about 20 cents of that dollar occurs um, farmer and earlier, say agribusiness inputs, 20 cents out of the dollar. So 80 cents of the dollar happens after the farmer ships it off of their farm. So that's where the inflation has to be occurring because you can't really get a ton of inflation off of 20 cents. I mean, even if you doubled it, which is not happening, you're not going to get the same impact we're seeing right now. So this is more that labor transformation, transportation cost. And we've kind of been dealing with that. Now, I, it is interesting. If you look at where we are in terms of trucking employment and food manufacturing employment, we are actually higher than pre-COVID right now, which surprises people. And so... You know, I get out a lot. I spent all last week out in Wisconsin, sitting at conference room tables, talking to food manufacturers, and it's real. Their truck rates, their labor rates, their packaging, they're dealing with it. But it's not the same that it was six months ago or a year ago. I always ask them that question, and here's the answer. They say, oh, I could use a few more good employees, and I'd really be nice if I don't have to hike wages anytime soon. But it's not the same intensity that we saw 
six months ago or 12 months ago when they were just down bodies, couldn't find them whatsoever. So what I'm thinking, what I'm, what I'm seeing in my analysis is we're kind of past that point of crisis. And right now we're kind of getting back to this question is what does it really cost to transform these raw ingredients into the food, in the package, in the store that we all want to purchase? And so that's a different question. And it's interesting for a long, long time, the, the, the buyers from the, from the major supermarkets, they were the gatekeeper of inflation, to say the least. They were basically no price increase. In fact, I was hoping for a price decrease on this current iteration. Last 18 months, they've kind of given up on that mentality or attitude. And, but it's going to be interesting because it's going to come back. Two things to remember about the food industry. One is most food inflation over time is food improvement. Better food, better variety, better packaging, all that good stuff that we love, convenience. And the other thing is the competitiveness. These food manufacturers love to run right in that mid 90% capacity utilization. Nobody wants to be at 100%. That's just really uncomfortable. But if you drop below the mid 90s, then you have a lot of excess capacity. I know the investments there. I know the automations there. It's slow to appear. But they're getting back to that point where they're going to start competing again because they have such enormous economies of scale, such high fixed costs. One of, the, one of the individuals in the room last week was one of the cost accountants. And she was very adamant that you don't want to drop below a certain level of capacity utilization. I think we're closer to getting back to that fighting phase for market share than we're not. And that's going to be an interesting dynamic as we kind of shift through that whole mentality of who's keeping score on the prices and who's competing for market share. It's one of the things we're starting to track here at the Food Institute. To your point, you know, the last six months, it's been price increases. And, you know, a lot of insiders I've talked to have said, you know, now is the time to do it because you're not going to get a lot of pushback. But we're starting to see some inklings of, you know, consumer demand kind of evaporating because of these costs, right? And, you know, I think a lot of times consumers are used to gas prices going up and down and kind of dealing with that. But when it comes to their supermarket uh, bill, they're usually, you know, within that specific target. And I can tell you, at least anecdotally on the Food Institute morning meetings, a lot of us are looking at our supermarket bills and saying, what happened here, right? So it's kind of interesting to see that. And I would agree. I think we're getting to the point where we're going to see retailers and also CPG makers as well start to say, hey, you know, we can't just do this forever. We can't just pass the buck because eventually consumers are going to say, well, I'm going to try someplace else. So be interesting to see when that flips around. Um, one of the things I want to talk to you a little bit about today, too, is just fertilizer production. And this kind of goes back to also, you know, a lot of media reports saying that decent amount of the world's fertilizers are coming out of the Ukraine-Russia region. So I was wondering, you know, overall, what would you say fertilizer availability is right now? Um, do you think farmers are going to be able to access enough for this crop? Or do you think there's going to be more of a challenge than is currently being predicted? Well, you know, let's, let's talk a couple of basics here. One is, it's really Russia and Belarus. And let's consider them the same political block because Belarus does not have much um, room to run from Russia, to say the least. And so Russia and Belarus are the two big producers there. That's given for the fact that Belarus has the uh, potash in their mines and Russia has a natural gas for the nitrogen and, and the phosphate. So they, they haven't lost that capacity, to say the least. So the Ukraine was never really a major source of fertilizer. So once again, you have to ask the political question. Is somebody going to say no to Russian fertilizer if the Russians offer it? And the answer is probably not. Because if you're a Russian uh, long-term ally, you're going to buy it from Russia. Now, there are probably logistical challenges. But so it's more, what does Russia want to do with its supply? 
That's a different question than not having it available. So the other thing that I think, and going back to your question, is we are lucky. Most of the fertilizer has been in place for this crop year for six months, you know, whether it was in the field or in, in, in the storage shed. So this year is pretty much in good shape. Second point, the United States is a, is a very safe position. We're a major producer of nitrogen and phosphate. We only have to import potash, but it comes mainly from Canada. So luckily for us, we still have good relationships with Canada. We'll try to be polite like they are. So we're in a good spot. There's some, one major rival to the United States who's in a tough spot would be Brazil. If anybody has to really wonder about that next crop, it's gonna be Brazil. They are much more import intensive on almost all three of the NPK. So if you're looking for trouble in the world, look at Brazil's opportunity set and where they're gonna import their fertilizer from for the next crop. And they run on a six month cycle. They're always have the next crop coming up right right behind the first one. So yeah, let's go down that line a little bit then. Where do you think, are there other viable alternatives for a place like Brazil? Is this something that they can come to the US for some of these you know, fertilizer products or is this something they're gonna to have to go to the rest of the world for? Yes, they can come to the United States. We've seen com companies such as Nutrien and, and uh, CF Industries actually promote the idea of taking it out of the Gulf Coast and down to Brazil. They love market share. Now, there's another wrinkle in, in, in the food world that we have to appreciate, China. Right now, we know there's a lot of COVID um, snafus going on in China. But the Chinese, in 2016, 17, were one of the predominant producers of all three of these NPK. But they really stepped back from the market. I mean, in a huge way. And we look at the statistics. And the question you have to ask is why? Two answers come to mind for me. One is price. Fertilizer in 2017 was cheap and the Chinese are dumb. They said, why am I gonna produce it to lose money? And they said, no, but they have the capacity. And at these prices, the Chinese, like I said, are pretty astute, pretty on the ball producers. They might say, you know what? Maybe I get back in the game at these prices. So Brazil might be turning back and looking at China if China wants to get back in the game. I'm gonna bring up another point that, was, that came up in a couple of, of the tables. We've depended on China for a lot of key inputs over the last 20 years. And the question is, how much dependency do we wanna put on China for their ability to come in and out of the market? Even for completely legitimate economic reasons, make money, don't make money. It's, a lot of people are asking, do I wanna have that much emphasis on a supply point that I don't have a lot of vision into? So food inflation right now also is entangled with the Chinese situation. And that's one of the things we've been seeing here too, is a lot of drives to try to bring production closer to home, right? And I think that's probably stemming from at this point, right, a year and a half worth of supply chain snarls that have really kind of taken the world economy. And I don't want to say has really downgraded it, but it seems to kind of be putting the shackles on it. Can't be, you know, it's not growing at a rate I think some people were expecting. So I'd like to kind of dive into that a little bit too. We talked a little bit about supply chains earlier, but I'm just wondering, what are you seeing when farmers are looking for transport? I know for them, it's usually trucking, but even air, rail, sea, how do you see the current supply chain, maybe mess is a strong word at this point. It, it has clarified itself a little bit, but you look around the rest of the world and it's not like things are operating like they were in 2018, 2019, right? So I'm wondering what your, what your vantage point is on just the supply chain in general at the current moment. You know, just a couple of emails came in this weekend or this morning, you know, rail, for example, you mentioned that, you know, kind of snarled. I mean, it's, it's like everything else. It's, it's dependent on something that happened just a little while ago. 
And so we're hearing from like the southeastern part of the United States, they, and it's, once again, everything's connected. We just don't see how. The East Coast of the United States, even though we're a strong self-supplier of fertilizer, they depended on Russian supplies because it's just a lot easier to bring it into the East Coast, take a ship into a port and only move it, you know, a couple hundred miles at most to the, to the production, not available. So now they're depending on uh, U.S. rail, which has not set the flow from the Gulf Coast to Georgia. And so they're struggling trying to get Jones chartered ships to bring fertilizer around the horn of Florida into the East Coast, not as easy as you would think. So yes, we're hearing a lot of struggles on the East Coast in particular. The Midwest, which is really the center of gravity for us, in pretty good shape on the river barges, uh, on the rail, because that's how it always runs, north-south along the Mississippi. Containers, interesting. Out of uh, Oregon, uh, talking to a farmer there, they ship a lot of grass seed around the world. You know, they have containers, but they can't get them on the boat. He says his attitude was, it seems to slip. It's supposed to be on, go on the first boat, it goes on the second boat. Well, then what's supposed to go on the second boat ends up on the third boat. So it's kind of like a slow conveyor belt, he said. It's still moving. It's just frustrating that you can't deliver on the day you said you were going to deliver to your customers. And it really hurts them because they've, reli they've been reliable suppliers for, for a long time and they hate to be unreliable. So we're seeing those challenges still there, but it's kind of pockets based on system um, network. I'd like to switch gears a little bit again, but another thing we've been seeing in the news a lot is about the drought out West. Earlier this year, there was a lot of optimism, I would say. Um, the snowpack seemed like it was stronger, a little bit wetter out in California than normally was, but you know, you take a look at the condition now and it's starting to seem like we're gonna see another year of drought in the West this, you know, this year. So I was wondering if you could give us an idea of how this will impact harvests. I know this is not so much grains, this is more specialty crops for them, but I'm wondering how are you seeing how this is gonna play out for the US food system in the year to come? Good question. Actually, we've seen the Pacific Northwest improve a little bit. So Washington, Oregon, which are nice states for some of these um, specialty crops, seeing a little bit of improvement there, but you're, you're spot on with California. So we're still rolling out what they refer to as SIGMA in California, which is Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. And a lot of investment questions around there, um, what they're gonna do, pricing of water. I mean, they've gotten used to using $2,000 per acre foot in some markets for water costs. It's just incredible when a crop needs three to four acre feet of water, we're talking about six to $8,000 worth of water to make it grow. You think how much crop and how valuable does it need to be to absorb that water cost? So that's still a major problem. Now, when we look at the, at the US central region, what we're seeing there is a little interesting one. We're seeing a little bit of improvement in the Dakotas, Montana, that part uh, of the Northern Plains, but we're seeing the drought intensify and shift down into the panhandle of Texas, which also hits us hard for winter wheat, which is definitely not something we wanna see right now, and the cattle market. So there's a lot of shifting going around in there. So some improvement, some worsening. This is a very typical drought situation, but California is really struggling to figure out what it wants to do and what it's willing to pay for, for water in the, in the current situation. So we just talked about the Pacific Northwest, uh, California, Texas, et cetera. But what about the Midwest? I know we talked a little bit there, but what kind of challenges are they going to be facing? Is a future where they're purchasing water at the same kind of levels California farmers have to do? Is that something that's going to be on the table for them? To your point about the Midwest, there's a lot of good water technology, either excess or de deficiency. You know, what's interesting is a lot of times during the year you have too much water. 
So we're seeing tiling to move water off the acre to let the crop breathe and perform. And we're also seeing more interest in high efficiency irrigation. Typically in the Midwest, what we see is a three to four week window where it's too hot and too dry to let that genetics on the crop really perform. Corn's a sprinter. It needs to have good resources all the time. And so what we're seeing in the Midwest is as new generations of farmers take over, they're looking to put that investment in place to either to mitigate too much or too little. And they're working through the economics of it because nothing's free, nothing's easy to manage. I mean, you put in a pivot, you gotta manage it. And so we're seeing them work through those economics, but to say the least, automation and technology are really augmenting technology for our opportunities in the future. I know we've had a lot of pivots in this conversation, but one thing I think we should talk about today too is HPAI or highly pathogenic avian influenza, probably better known as just avian flu or bird flu. I know it's not the first time the U.S. has had to contend with this, but it does seem to be making a lot of national news. And it's kind of interesting since there seems to be a lot of commodity price fluctuations accompanying it. I actually just released a piece on foodinstitute.com last week featuring Wells Fargo's Kevin Bergquist as well, taking a look at this. So I was just wondering, what's your vantage point on HPAI? How is it going to affect affect markets going forward? Good question. You know, going back, 2015 was the last major, um, you know, avian influenza outbreak that we saw. And it is interesting. If you go back and look at the data, it's basically, let's be honest, an Iowa, Minnesota problem. That's where the flocks are. That's where the turkeys are. That's where the laying hens are. And so it was really, you know, 90 plus percent was in those two states. So we did have outbreaks all across the United States but they weren't anything that moved the market. So what's been interesting is since that point in time, the sheer analysis and investment around biosecurities that got into this. So last week I was in central Wisconsin, sitting down with a major egg producer, and they were going to typically invite us into their meeting room. The meeting room's kind of funny. It has an enormous glass wall onto the hatchery, but because AP, HPIA was in full breakout, red alert, we didn't meet there. So we had to meet at an offsite facility. But it's interesting. Yes, we've lost some flocks, but the, the, the biosecurity of this outbreak is much different than it was back in 2015, 2016. So it, it's, it's interesting how people learn in the investment. Now, this is not to be critical, but a lot of the flocks that we've lost, um, there's always exceptions, have been some of the, let's just say, less stringent producers you know some of the some of the south dakota turkey producers that got hit they really weren't top of their game you know and that, that's not a criticism it's just they hadn't seen it in you know seven years and they weren't expecting to see it again but i think we're already past peak uh, on some of those outbreaks because we're seeing the end of the uh, migration season for the for the waterfall and things like that but i think we have to be appreciative of the number of flocks and how quickly they can repopulate. So yes, a big price spike. It took eight months from peak to valley in prices last time. If you look at the last outbreak, we peaked, and then eight months later, we set a new record low price for eggs. That's how fast this industry could spin on its, on its axle. So I expect to see them respond to high prices with a lot of production. All right, perfect. And the last thing I want to bring up, you know, we talked about a lot of different topics here, Dr. Swanson, but I'm guessing the last thing I want to bring up is just anything that we may have missed. Is there anything on the table that you see is going to be a major issue in the coming year that maybe people aren't really talking about yet? You know, I think it's interesting. We're going to have to revisit this biodiesel initiative that came off the West Coast. 
when you see soybean oil at 80 cents a pound, and you see that soybeans are $14 or $15 a bushel, there's a complete disconnect between the value of the crop and the edible oil for people. And that's being driven by this energy demand side. We need to have a, a better comprehensive national policy about when and how do we manage renewable fuels. They're wonderful products. I, I'm a big fan of renewable fuels, but we need to have a much more sophisticated framework of saying, when you have a short supply of the feedstock, how do you manage the thermostat to make sure that you don't break a market? And so I think there's something that needs to be brought up, hopefully with a very calm approached way of saying, what do we want to accomplish? How do we build a thermostat to make it sure that the, the stays on an even keel? But that's something that I think a lot of food manufacturers, and we just heard about the palm oil embargo. I mean, that was news from last Friday, the palm oil embargo from Indonesia. I mean, nobody saw that coming. And suddenly we're looking at the largest, one of the largest exporters of palm oil embargoing the world market. And it's tied to a large degree to this biodiesel initiative, which nobody saw these side effects coming. So we need to have a, a good conversation around that and have much better policy. So that brings our conversation to a close. Uh, Dr. Swanson, is there any place you would want to send any of our visitors if they want to learn a little bit more about you and your work? Well, Wells Fargo does have our food and egg um, portion of the website. We invite people to check out all the information there. So Google Wells Fargo Food and Agriculture and you'll certainly find it. And we'll definitely share a link to that in the description of this episode. I want to thank Dr. Swanson again for his time today. And I want to remind you one more time about the Food Institute Live. I know we're still in the beta, but we are going to be doing more and more of these. So keep an eye out on YouTube and LinkedIn for a link. You can catch us while we're actually speaking about these topics in real time. So once again, like I said, that's the end of this week's episode. Thank you again for joining. Please follow, like, and share. We'll catch you next time. This is Chris Campbell signing off. Thank you.